Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Oversight offices now have authoritative guidance on how to make their workplaces more accessible and equitable. The guidance comes in an update to a DEIA roadmap created by a diversity committee for offices of inspector general. Some IGs say improving diversity will improve IG reports. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with the DEIA committee head and education department inspector general, Sandra Bruce. The roadmap still continues to be a tool for the OIG community to use just to advance diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Um, The goal has and continues to be for OIGs to use that regardless of size, medium, large, small. And the, the two things that we've added thus far, um, the safe and harassment free workplaces, it was in the original version, but it was under development. We hadn't completed the routes on which the really goals to make sure that there are tools there for folks to use. So in this version, we've actually added those and there are four routes that people can actually use um, you want to start off with a self-assessment, kind of looking at the workforce, see what the workforce composition is like so that you can then look at the policy that's going to impact the, the workforce in the workplace. The other exciting section is accessibility. You know, the roadmap focuses on the A in DEIA. We kind of put accessibility throughout the roadmap as we were preparing it. We kind of went back and looked at it and said, you know, we can do a deeper dive about accessibility. Now, it's so important. The um, accessibility piece, it includes three routes um, where you're going to evaluate your policies and procedures. You're going to look at your services. You want to make sure that you're complying with accessibility requirements. And you want to make sure that you're also complying with reasonable accommodations. Um, Then there's education. Um, There's a lot there that we can do to increase staff's awareness on accessibility, disability, and accommodations. So those are the the two main things in the roadmap. And there's another little item that we added um, under stakeholder oversight, and that was a toolkit for considering equity when conducting oversight work. Just things you can consider when you are conducting your oversight work, kind of incorporating all that into your methodologies, and again, always about policies and procedures and data. That's really going to be the key for us and how we're going to be evaluating um, DEIA and how it's moving along. A couple different areas that um, really stood out to me when you were talking about accessibility, for example, those changes or the ones to equity, were these things that you were hearing from the IG community that they wanted uh, more support in or what what kind of drove the changes uh, that you made to the roadmap? So, Drew, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you the, the success of the roadmap and the DIA committee overall is the commitment and support from the IGs and the, and the staff. And so as we are going through and we're looking at the roadmap, the teams always look to see, are there gaps there? And as we learn more, we try to incorporate more. So with equity, we knew we always needed to do more um, as far as having tools. Um, Even with GAO, the Yellow Book talks about how it's our responsibility as management and management officials to make sure that equity, among other things, is incorporated into um, our oversight role and how we're making sure these programs are being um, used as intended and the funds are being spent as intended. And so when we looked at Jano's Yellow Book, of course, we're always looking for, hey, what's the guidance that's going to actually help us carry this out? 
And so the team actually came up with all of these things. They benchmarked, they reviewed, they researched. And these 11 areas were the overarching areas that they identified. And when you look into the roadmap, you can actually see links where you can click on sources and look at different ways who were different organizations, OIGs and um, federal agencies, just tools and tips they've used to incorporate these things. And then the other thing too, when you're thinking about equity, um, it's not just within our oversight work, we have to think about it as far as our people, right? Because our people are the, the ones who conduct the oversight work. So we wanna make sure that again, our policies and procedures, our processes, we're really looking at what we have assessing it to make sure that there aren't any gaps. And if there are gaps, let's make some improvements. And I always say, Drew, DEI is a journey, not a destination. So this is going to be a, uh, an iterative process. And as we learn more, we'll do more. I like that you use the word journey. I think that fits really well with the idea of this roadmap that you guys have. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about the workforce. You mentioned it's important to have equity, not only in the reports and the data that you have, but also with the people themselves. How important is that connection? Do you see having a more, you know, equitable or diverse workforce contributing to the quality of the reports and how you move forward with DEIA in that regard as well? I do. When I think of DEIA, and not just the letters, the EI, I think about people. I think about the workforce and the workplaces. Because if you're making investments in your people, you're making everyone feel like they have a sense of belonging, that spills over into your, your work. When you're developing a culture where everyone has a sense of belonging and that they're valued, now people are more innovative, they're more productive, they're more impactful. There, you can retain your 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 great talent. You know, you're, you're retaining talented staff. All of those things help us when you're now doing your oversight work. It actually kind of gives you a a lens as well, because now you're building um, equity into processes. Something as simple as project assignments. You know, getting people's um, buy-in. Hey, what do you want to work on? What's going to help you advance your career? You know, so you're getting different perspectives. You're talking about projects before you actually start them as part of planning. Um, tell me about some of the things that you think may impact how we're going to look at this particular program. There may be some personal experiences that folks may feel or something that has dealt, they have had to deal with with their own family members. You know, when you're speaking of these programs, uh, me uh, in, in particular with education. Education is in everyone's household. So when we're looking at some of these programs, you can relate to some of the things that are supposed to happen. And then while you're kind of putting that kind of as a lens over the methodology that you're using to do your oversight work, it just makes it that much better. Sandra Bruce is Inspector General at the Education Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. 
Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and in the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. 
Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins 
who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.